Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We're in the section of uh, the Gospel of Matthew where we're in the final, the final week as Christ is approaching his betrayal, being crucified, ultimately to rise on the third day. But the week preceding is giving its own message. And it's a hard message. This was a heavy message. I woke up with it and felt the heaviness of what I was going to preach, not because of what I think I'm going to say, but just the weight of what's here. This is a passage of judgment that Jesus is pronouncing on the Jews. Our text is going to be verses 17 to 22. This judgment passage is Jesus coming as a prophet. Jesus, by theologians, has have sort of have been has been captured as doing three things always in his mission and ministry. He's either functioning as a prophet, a priest, or a king. And here, predominantly, we see him as prophet. He's giving a word of final judgment on apostate Israel. Not all Jews die in unbelief. There are those in the gospel stories that are coming to life. The disciples themselves have come to life. There's always a remnant that comes to life and believes. But by and large, the mass of Israel is in hard-hearted rejection of the coming Messiah. All of this anticipation is sort of slammed shut against hard-hearted rejection. Reminds me a bit of our country today, a great history in Christianity, history of churches and church life, and God now is given perhaps a veiled acknowledgement in our culture, but less and less so. Christ is hate speech in many um, mouths of society. People are awkward about church life and the word of God being truth, and It's all the more reason for us to stand up and say that there is a judge and judgment that is coming if you reject Christ. Christ is modeling the ministry of prophet as the ultimate prophet, the perfect prophet. He's the one that will see with perfect omniscience or sightedness as to what's going to come. And he brings the bad news to spring people out of their bad state. But he also brings bad news on people who are being judged, who would not turn to Christ. As Christians, we kind of carry the torch that Jesus carried. We are witnesses for Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. And we're ambassadors of love. We're ambassadors of grace. We're ambassadors of truth. We're trying to call people to be reconciled to Christ with the way we live or things that we say or things we don't say and don't do. In the midst of all that loving message, there's also the hard message of if you don't repent and believe, there is eternal hell, there is destruction that awaits. This is the role of a prophet's life as a Christian. Now, we're not an Old Testament prophet. We're not speaking inspired truth. We're not New Testament prophets like Agabus. We're not speaking New Testament truth. But when we speak the New Testament or we speak the Bible, Old and New Testament, we are speaking for God. And we can speak with confidence about what's going to happen. 
We know where we came from. We, we know God is creator. This was not a, an evolutionary process in macroevolution. That, that didn't happen. Uh, the world was created in six literal creation days, and God rested on the seventh day. Um, man is made as the pinnacle of God's creation. We're made in the image of God. We're image bearers. But we are under a curse of sin that is going from bad to worse in digressive degeneration. God sent his son 2,000 years ago to be the rescue mission for all who would believe and see him and seek him as Savior and Lord. And that gospel witness is now live on our lips as the New Testament church is born of people who have believed in Jesus, death, burial, resurrection. We are committed to Christ in this mission. As the culture goes down, the church is to be strong and stronger. And ultimately, one day we'll be around the throne, every tribe, nation, tongue, and people worshiping God as creator and as savior. That's the story. We have a frame of reference that most people in the world, they might know something of that story, but they don't really have a convictional frame of reference like we do. We have, as 1 Corinthians 2 says, the mind of Christ. That's an incredible stewardship. We can think like Jesus thought. We can live as Christ. My daughter, uh, who's not here so I can talk about her, she's down in college, um, but she, she worked at a, you know, a retail store in town. Some of you know that. And she was reflecting out loud about interactions she had with coworkers and unbelievers, people who are a part of cults, people who are a part of different things. And the, but the, everybody's asking whether secular or Christianized or, or quasi-Christianized, they're all asking the same questions. Why, you know, why, do, why is the world the way it is? Why did God, if God exists, allow for evil to enter the world? Why did he make a devil? Why did he allow for that? What's the resolution in all of this? And it comes down to Understanding God is the creator. He is God, we are not. And he is on display through what he has allowed. All his grace and all his justice meet at his great redemption story. And this is the gospel. And this is the rescue mission where you're saved from death and brought to life. And you can know the Lord. Now, my daughter, who's 19, wouldn't be preaching in that context, but she would definitely be living a life in a way where people would ask her those questions and she could respond to them. This is the kind of message that you give when you start talking where the stakes are this high. There is a God. There's real accountability. There's real heaven. There's real hell. There's justice and judgment that awaits for the sinner who won't repent and follow Jesus. You say anything along those lines... And, and this is the sum total of the word of God. You start, you start talking in those categories. People are going to go, man, I'm feeling judged. I'm feeling the pressure of judgment. And Jesus, as a prophet, models this ministry for us to follow. He didn't mince words. Again, we just follow the Bible. The Bible, I mean, the church has been built on the apostles and the prophets of old. Uh, the, the Bible was uh, what the children of Israel, as it was written by Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, that was brought into the promised land. Nothing was to be added or taken from that. And then the, the word of God through inspired prophets and, and writers developed the full canon of scripture. So we don't exceed scripture. We don't add or take away from scripture. We just preach and live truth. And that's what brings this ministry of Christ to others.
Let me read our text and just get us started. For Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22. It says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You say, is this a very winsome message? Jesus is coming in on day two of the Passion Week. Day one would be Palm Sunday. He came in with a triumphal entry. He spied out the temple according to Mark's gospel, and he's coming back from Bethany, sort of a a miles away home base, coming back to Jerusalem. And as he enters the city, we pick up where he's hungry. He's hungry. He's going to cleanse the temple. According to Mark's chronology, if you see it the way Mark described it in Mark 11, you have him cursing, seeing the fig tree, cursing the fig tree, and then he cleanses the temple. They come back, and the tree is completely upended and withered in immediacy. Matthew puts this whole story together with kind of elision, just puts it in one soundbite for us to see and feel the strong point of what's there. And this is his message. It's that there's no fruit on it, and so it is cursed not to return or come back to life Again, this is a a sad story of devolution. This is what, listen, this is what you never once said about you by Christ as a Christian. And there's always going to be two kinds of people in our community. There's going to be believers and there's going to be unbelievers. In the preceding paragraph in Matthew 21, 12 through 16, we learned about the temple, how there were the racketeers. That's who Jesus finds at the sole center of Jerusalem, the religious center. Everybody had lauded him, Hosanna, king of the Jews. And then he goes and finds people working the system, selling their goods for dishonest gain. And he cleanses the temple. What happens after that is the lame and the blind come in. Those who were outcasts in the temple were welcomed in. 100,000 people were pushed out supernaturally by Christ. And then the lame and the blind come in. And then the children who were the 12-year-olds for bar mitzvah, those little boys rise up in a choir and sing praises to Jesus as Messiah. There's always two groups. There's always two groups. Here we have two groups. One, you have apostate Israel, the apostates. And two, you have disciples who are called to be committed wholesale believers to pray and believe things in faith. If you're taking a a header outline of the gospel of Matthew, the rest of the chapter, I've outlined it this way. It begins with 
this idea. Five devolving rejections. These are the Jews rejecting Christ over and over again, devolving rejections with five hopeful receptions. So you have dejection and reception. And the first was racketeers and innocents, that's 12 to 16. And now you have apostates and believers, verses 17 to 22. And it begins with a curse, a curse. Jesus in the morning, he's returning to the city, Jerusalem. He's hungry. He's a man, fully God, but he's fully human. He's hungry. And he sees a fig tree by the wayside. Now, how big's a fig tree? Fig trees were big enough for people to be seen under. Nathaniel in John's gospel, John chapter 1 was seen by Christ under a fig tree. Remember that? Remember Nathaniel was wondering if Jesus was the Messiah, and he says, I'm the Messiah. I saw you under the fig tree. It was omniscience. And so they're a big tree. And these kinds of trees, and I looked it up on Google, so it's got to be factual. Um, they actually do have two times where they have ripened figs that you can pull off and eat. One is in springtime at like the end of March, April. And um, the other is at our time period right now in August. And they're in the springtime. And so it's the early harvest. It's the early opportunity to pick a fig off what um, actually was called the breba in Spanish language. It's the brief crop, little nodules that you can eat just for a brief time. That's what Jesus is looking for as a hungry traveler. He's concerned for his hunger. He knows he's got a mission to do in the temple but he's concerned to eat something, a little snack on the way. And there's nothing there. There's nothing there. You might say, is Jesus just using this to prove a point, like he really wasn't hungry? No, I think he was genuinely hungry. He's genuinely pulling back the leaves. And it says he found, verse 19, nothing on it, only leaves. I just... The picture of this is interesting because he's finding something that looks healthy on the outside and yet it's completely sick on the inside. That's the picture. Think of Adam and Eve who sinned in the garden and they covered themselves with leaves. Why? Because they wanted to look healthy on the outside, but there was a terrible problem on the inside. In this case, the tree is sick, but it's a picture of sick, sinful Israel that isn't believing in Jesus, really. Think of Matthew 23, 27 to 28, where Jesus says to the scribes, woe or damned to you, scribes and Pharisees. Here's the key word, hypocrites, fakers. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I know we are Christians here and we proclaim Christ and none of us are perfect on the inside. And we're probably always struggling with how we look on the outside compared to what we're really working through on the inside. The warning here is to not give up the fight. Kill what's on the inside. Receive rebuke from your friends. Listen to people that are seeing things that are inside you. Where Jesus is pulling back the leaves of your life, what is he finding? Hopefully he's finding someone who isn't perfect, but is trying to live for Christ by the Holy Spirit. But for you who is sitting here where you go, you know, I don't think I know God at all yet. I think it is just external. 
I think I am playing games with myself with self-righteousness. Repent of that. Turn to Christ genuinely. Live for him genuinely. That's what Jesus calls you to do is completely release all self-righteousness and come to him in complete helplessness, surrendering under him in full submission to his lordship. That's what it means to genuinely be a follower of Christ. We're always going to have an internal fight where we wish that the sin in our heart would be all the way gone and we repent of those things and we work on it with people and others and we work on it by the Holy Spirit with the Lord. But if you don't know him, if you're genuinely empty inside, give your full self to Christ today. That's the picture. You don't want it to be too late. Last Monday, I, was, uh, I told you guys I was going on this float the Kenai trip and hopefully I'd come back in one piece and we all did. Um, Captain Pastor Hatter, you know, took, took me and our guests down the uh, Kenai in a float trip, and it was awesome. And it was super, super great. We saw five bears. That's amazing. Five bears. Was, actually, it was, yeah, if it was the same bear, it was five or six. Who knows, right? I mean, one time we were fishing, we're casting, you know, and you're, you're all safe and good. And you see your, you, I saw Steve down, down river, and a black bear came out of the woods, you know, it was right there. And, and Steve's just coming, you know, coming my way, kind of smiling, like, I'm not going to look back and I'm not going to fall down right now. So they had those moments. And then, uh, you know, like a brown adolescent bear throwing a log around, looked like something just out of a movie, just, just surreal. And then it might've been the same bear, but a black bear, you know, with two adolescent cubs. And then the one that comes behind, you know, so it was three. So it was a lot. It was a lot. And we caught, you know, a few fish. But the bears. Anyway, all that to say, as we're going down the river, there you see all the beauty that's there, but you also see a lot of beetle-eaten spruce trees. Doesn't that make you a little sad? Just the brown tree. It's not coming back. It just, it's dead standing. Well, that's what Jesus is seeing here with this fig tree. It's just dead. It's dead already. It's got no fruit at this time that it should. And he pronounces a curse. Judgment is passed on it. It's dead and it is come to the point of no return. The point is hypocrisy is what leads you into the death spiral. Don't be a faker. Don't be someone who, who hides in your heart because God sees you for who you really are. Romans 1 promises things are going to go bad to worse. Don't go with it. Don't go with the culture. I mean, it's actually freeing. It's hard to follow Christ in a culture that's telling you, follow yourself, live for yourself, worship yourself, worship your appetites, worship your own sinful pleasures, feed your mind with what is disgusting. This is what produces life. It's hard to fly in the face of that. But when you're free from the world by the power of the Spirit, it's incredible. When you shed the external weight of guilt-ridden self-righteousness where you just keep failing, climbing, climbing the greased pole, you're trying to get to heaven and you can't do it, you keep going down. When you get off of that track and you say, no, it's, I'm crucified with Christ. That's what we just sang. It's yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. When you're there, it's better. That's where you're supposed to be. The disciples... Um, marvel at what Jesus did here. Verse 19 says, may no fruit 
ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. The fig tree, when they came back to it, it was literally withered and up, uprooted, probably. Just, there, there's, there's no mistaking the fact that this thing is destroyed. And the disciples are amazed. They're going to ask a question. You have the curse, and then you have the question. They're asking a question about what happened because Jesus didn't do destructive miracles. Think about it. He gave the blind sight. He healed the deaf, the lame, those who had walked into the temple. He just healed them outright. But here's a curse. This is something that's different. This is something that has their attention. Destructive miracle is the only one of its kind. You think of God flooding the world. You think of the commands of the plagues, destroying the Egyptians, destroying the Egypt's firstborn son. You think of the earth swallowing the tribe of Korah. You think of the fiery serpents that are un- unleashed against the wandering wilderness children that were headed to the promised land because they complain. You think of Israel's captivity being held captive twice, the, the city burned. You think of the destructive miracle that'll be the final destructive miracle of the earth that is reserved for fiery judgment. It was destroyed by water. Second Peter says our world will be destroyed by fire. The unseen version of destruction is the supernatural destruction that's in hell where the flesh of unbelievers who are unrepentant are there forever burning. The devil and his angels, it's reserved for them. Hell is a supernatural destruction reserved for all that follow the devil's path. The hypocrites, the unrepentant, The common thread of this kind of destruction comes from those who are hard-hearted and are, are held captive in unbelief. It's called being apostate. It's where God looks at you and says, you have come to the point of no return, and so I am passing over you, which is to declare that someone is reprobate. Romans 1 says people are given over to a reprobate mind. Romans 1 is the death spiral of culture where people are giving themselves over to unnatural desires, unnatural appetites, worshiping the creature or self instead of the creator. They're they're in self-idolatry. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They give themselves over. They give themselves over and then God gives them over. That's the doctrine of reprobation. That's this kind of curse. What's the answer? It's always saving faith. The only thing that can spring someone out from this trap is saving faith, where you are coming up to the point of no return and you say, listen, don't go there. Hell is real. Jesus is the Savior and he will spring you out of that doomed and damned state. Christ is all. You say, what an encouraging message this morning. Thank you so much. Well, it's, it's less encouraging and it's more commissioning. This is our commission. We do follow Jesus. We follow his example. We follow his model. And you answer the questions clearly with people. Colossians says, let your speech be seasoned as it were with salt so that you will be able to give an answer when called upon. Colossians chapter 4. You want to be able to answer people because you've whetted their appetite with the way that you live. If people don't ask you gospel questions... You might need to take an examination, you know, time with yourselves and think, why? Why aren't people asking me about Christ? I need to live for Christ. So what's the answer? Live in solid faith. Look at this. This is 
the answer in verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will do, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is a very, very strong couple verses where a lot of modern day denominations have taken it off course. People will misconstrue and use verses like these to try to prop people up with their own sort of self-imposed God status. Well, they say, look, if I have enough willpower and if I believe enough for something to happen, it'll happen. If I focus on that mountain, there are people who literally, they'll take a verse like this and say, I'm going to focus with my willpower and try to move that mountain through prayer. Or I'm going to declare it as such and explain it away for why it doesn't happen. (laughs) Or I'm going to live under the guilt of not having enough faith to change the weather or change my circumstance or declare a healing. It's the word of faith movement that has trap so many people with verses like these when Jesus wasn't saying that at all. What Jesus is saying here is he's using hyperbole and an an analogy to say, listen, if your faith is solid and you're unwavering, then you can pray in accordance with God's will and God's will will be done. That's, That's really the practice of these verses. We live in light of God's providence. We live in light of the will of God. God's will, as I said before, has been determined and it's been written in the word of God in a way that we can actually understand what's happening, where we came from, why we're here, why things are wrong, how things are made right, how to repent, how to believe, how to have a changed heart and how to go to heaven. I mean, we have an amazing instruction manual in the word of God, and we can pray along those lines. And as our prayers synchronize with God's unfolding providence, it's amazing to see things happen. It's amazing. I don't know how God's providence works exactly, and I don't know exactly how we pray things and then things come true, except to say God's will is being done and he invites us to participate in it. It's incredible. There are people who, again, like Joel Osteen, who just butcher all of this and make it about man-centered, sort of trying to exercise what's called the law of attraction. You know, if you believe hard enough for something, then you'll be wealthy, then you'll have stuff. Joel Osteen says you can create faith and words, dreams and desires, health, wealth, happiness and success, all in his Your Best Life Now book says, if you develop an image of success and health and abundance and joy and peace and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold, um, be withheld from you. Well, what about suffering? How we're to suffer well for Christ Jesus? What does it mean to be a slave for Christ? What does it mean to, uh, to trust the Lord as a servant of Christ when God promises persecution to us? For those who live in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. You will suffer and bear the marks of the body of Christ. What do we do with all the martyrs of the New Testament? All those who died for the faith. What do we do with Hebrews 11 from Old Testament to New Testament, the heroes of the faith? I mean, we're not promised health and wealth here. We're promised an inheritance there. But we are promised the Holy Spirit so that we can suffer well and we can endure hardship and we can be soldiers for Christ and call people out 
of worldliness to live for him. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about having a solid faith or a real faith. Look at this, verse 21. If you have faith and do not doubt. Now, obviously, none of us are going to have a doubtless faith that's perfect. But what he's saying is you don't have a both and type of faith. You're not facing two directions at the same time where you go, yeah, I love Jesus, but I really want this. I want Jesus plus anything else. If you add something to Jesus, then you don't have a solid faith. James 1 talks about this, says that if you ask, if you lack wisdom, which is wisdom when you're under trial, when you're under persecution, if you need to have understanding with how to make it through something very difficult, ask God, he'll give it to you generously and without reproach. It'll be given to him. But it says in verse six, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is a person who shouldn't suppose he'd receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. He's going back and forth and up and down, rocking and rolling. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I need more of this in my life. People or money or fame or success or accolades or even social justice or I need a country that's more Christian again. I need, I need. It's like the What About Bob movie. I need, I need, give me, give me. You ever see that? Anyway, never mind. Forget all that. All that to say, it's this needy person who, who says you're solid, but really you're bifurcated. You're, you're two people. You need to be solid. And if you're solid, then you're going to line up with God's will. Maybe an extreme example of this is how would you be able to pray and have a mountain move? Well, if we pray in light of Zechariah 14.4, one day it's predicted that Christ will stand at the Mount of Olives when he returns. And that mountain's going to be split in two from east to west, a very wide valley, half the mountain on the northward side and the other half on the southward side. That's praying in light of God's will. Um, so Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, we pray within the predestination we pray within the providence of God. You pray within the sovereign plan of God. And God's will is done. One day in Luke 19, it shows Jesus coming in at the travel entry. It shows him weeping over the fact that at AD 70, the whole city is going to be upended. And so that's a mountain that's moved. The, the mountain area of Jerusalem was completely interrupted and destroyed. So we don't know. We don't know exactly what this means in terms of day-to-day -day application, except to say, if you're praying without doubting, you're not split in your heart, then as you pray for things, according to the will of God, you will see solid answers to your prayer, to your prayers. And God's will is being done. When you pray outside of God's will, that stuff just kind of, it's hay, wooden stubble. It's just falling, falling aside. It's just it's not meaningless. I mean, we're trying to get there. But when you pray and your thoughts are in accordance with Scripture, God's will is happening in front of you. Matthew 7, 7, ask, it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Does God give us everything we ask for? No. But he gives you everything that you ask for in accordance with God's will. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how it works. God is changing us to conform us to his will as we pray. You say, what does that sound like? Well, Romans 8, 26, listen to this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness 
For we do not know what to pray or how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As we pray, the Spirit of God takes our prayers and interprets them according to the will of God, and then God's will is being done in front of us. You say, so is it your prayer that's moving God? No, not in terms of human powers. We're not bending the will of God to our designs, but we're participating with God as his will is being done and accomplished. It's a lot that could be said there. In James 5, 15, when you pray for the sick, the elders are called to pray for those sick people that come and need help. And it says, and the Lord, the, it, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What does that mean? That means if someone needs to be saved in their heart, and it's God's will that that person be saved, that prayer is, is part of that powerful moment that person's coming to faith in Christ. And if you've ever come to faith in Christ, if you have, or you've seen somebody come to faith in Christ, and it's sort of an amazing thing where you're going, you aren't the same person, you know that that prayer lined up with God's will, and boom, there it is. And if you've ever seen somebody who has an inexplicable healing, where you're like, they're not supposed to be made whole. They, you know, they've got a terminal disease or something, and there's prayer for that, and God's will is for that person to be raised up. Boom. But that's all determined by God's will, not by our efforts. It's not what we did. It's what God did. First John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Does God hear all of our, our prayers? Yes. But hears, he's hearing us in this application in terms of he's answering yes. Our prayers are always God saying no or yes or wait. <laughs> and, and when it's yes, it's yes according to God's will and plan. If you look back at verse 20, the disciples marveled at this. They marveled at the fig tree withering at once. That was just a planned event that Jesus was, was right in the flow of, and he knew that he was to curse that tree to give them a clear example of what it looks like to be apostate. This is something that is, is a warning to all of us, but it's, it should be less of a warning to the church and more of a commission to go into the battle. And we're, try, we're not trying to provoke a fight with the government. We're not trying to provoke a fight and get people to hate us. We're not trying to break relationships apart. But I just want to challenge you in your heart. Just think for a minute. What will this week look like where I carry the message of Christ, the whole message, not just the grace and love, but also the warning of judgment? And the warning of judgment is the way to stop people in their tracks where they could say, you know, I need to look in the mirror and think about my state of soul. And I need to turn to Christ. Carrying that message is risky. You can risk friendships and relationships, but it's important for us to do that. We pray according to God's will that people will be released from God's curse and we give a hard message. It's judgment for rejectors and it's also grace and new life for believers when people believe. Verse 22, this is the confidence we have as we carry the message. Whatever we ask, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We come with a solid faith, a solid message. And as we pray according to God's will, he saves whom he wills.